edition. Coming right up, right now.
We'd like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9 or, of course, on your computer, www.citr.ca for live streaming. My name's Gavin Walker, and uh, there really isn't uh, a whole lot to tell you about tonight's jazz feature, but this is the first of two parts. This is kind of a, as a matter of fact, it's been a long-standing tradition with the jazz show to present two recordings um, that emphasize, that are kind of educational. Um, a lot of people don't know a whole lot about jazz music. They, they can recognize it when they hear it. They say, oh yeah, that's, that's jazz, etc., etc." Um, but there are ways of looking at it a little differently without knowing a lot of uh, uh, musical and, and, and technical stuff. And one of the people uh, who, during his time on the planet, communicated so well with uh, people that didn't have a musical education but appreciated music was Leonard Bernstein the great maestro. And so this is the part one of our entertainment and education um, jazz feature. We do this uh, every year uh, during the opening of the school year because, you know, it's back to school, back to work, that old, that old cliche. Um, so I always find it appropriate to play uh, two recordings, and the first one will be, of course, What is Jazz with Leonard Bernstein. And next week we'll be doing um, a history of jazz narrated by none other than Julian Cannonball Adderley, one of the great voices of the alto saxophone and a very lucid and relaxed speaker. And uh, he'll be... Um, talking and sort of going into a, a brief uh, history of jazz, touching on all kinds of uh, eras and so on. Now, both of these albums are, are finite. Uh, they were done uh, many years ago. So uh, in, in the Bernstein one that you're going to hear, there's a, a few things that sound humorously dated, um, he talks about jazz musicians being intellectuals <laughs> and wearing horn rim glasses. Uh, that's kind of, well, almost a cliche, but uh, um, there you go. Stuff. Like, there's a few lines like that that uh, should bring a smile to anybody's face. But even if you've heard this before, and many of our regular listeners have heard um, these albums every year, they always uh, tell me that um, there's always something new that they may have missed or an area that um, they uh, would like to explore a little further. So these albums are kind of uh, opening up um, an, an area and also really um, enlightening people to uh, how jazz music is put together. And this is what this one is all about. It's not a history of jazz per se. Um, it is sort of what makes jazz unique. In other words, what is jazz and what ain't jazz? 
This is what uh, Leonard Bernstein is going to lucidly talk about with lots of musical examples by some of the giants of jazz, people like Coleman Hawkins, Phil Woods, Miles Davis, um, all kinds of people will be uh, playing examples of uh, uh, music that he sets up in his narration. So that's the jazz feature this evening, and I can assure you that after the feature is over, we're going to devote the rest of the program to the music of Theodore Walter Rollins, better known as Sonny Rollins. Sonny, on September 7th, two days ago, just celebrated his 89th birthday. And he is one of the great living masters of jazz, even though he um, doesn't play anymore. He, uh, he regrets that, but uh, he, has, uh, he developed a lung ailment, and it prevents him from playing and even practicing. But he is still very much with us, and he represents um, an era of jazz that uh, is very, very important. And so I thought, well, because his birthday is so close, um, after the jazz feature, the Leonard Bernstein jazz feature, uh, we're going to be playing a lot of music by Sonny Rollins. So if you have time, we'd love you to stay around. So this is a very special edition of The Jazz Show. And uh, maybe I didn't say that, but my name's Gavin Walker. And we're going to get into our jazz feature right now with... The great maestro, Leonard Bernstein. What is jazz? Now anyone hearing this music, anyone on any civilized part of this earth, east or west, pole to pole, would immediately say, that is jazz. We are going to try to investigate jazz, not through the usual historical approach of up the river from New Orleans, etc., which has become all too familiar, but through approaching the music itself. We are going to examine the musical innards of jazz to find out, once and for all, what it is that sets it apart from all other music. Jazz is a very big word. It covers a multitude of sounds, all the way from the earliest blues. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. To Dixieland bands. <laughs> Charleston bands, to swing bands, to boogie woogie, to crazy bop. Cool Bop mm-hmm. 
humble. And much more. It is all jazz, and I love it all. I love it because it's an original kind of emotional expression, in that it is never wholly sad or wholly happy. Even the blues has a robustness and a hard-boiled quality that never lets it become sticky sentimental, no matter how self-pitying the words are. And on the other hand, the gayest, wildest jazz always seems to have some hint of pain in it. Listen to this trumpet and see what I mean. That is what intrigues me about jazz. It's unique, a form of expression all its own. Then I love it for its humor. It really plays with notes. We always speak of playing music. We play Brahms, we play Bach. It's a term perhaps more properly applied to tennis. But jazz is real play. It fools around with notes, so to speak. It has fun with them. It is therefore entertainment in its truest sense. But I find I have to defend jazz to those, for instance, who say it is low class. But then all music has low class origins since it comes from folk music, which is necessarily earthy. After all, Haydn minuets are only a refinement of simple, rustic German dances, and so are Beethoven scherzos. An aria in a Verdi opera can often be traced back to the most basic Neapolitan fisherman. Besides, there has always been a certain shadow of indignity around music, particularly around the players of music. I suppose it is due to the fact that historically, players of music seem to lack the dignity of composers of music. This is especially true of jazz, which is almost completely a player's art, depending as it does on improvisation rather than on composition. This means that the player of jazz is himself the real composer, which gives him a creative and therefore more dignified status. Well, then there are those who argue that jazz is loud. Well, so are Sousa marches, and we don't hear complaints about them. Besides, it's not always loud. It is very often extremely delicate, in fact. Perhaps this objection stems from the irremediable situation of what is, after all, a kind of brass band playing in a room too small for it. But that is not the fault of jazz itself. However, the main argument against jazz has always been that it is not art. I think it is art, and a very special one. But before we can argue about whether it is or not, we must know what it is. And so I propose to share with you some of the things I know and love about jazz. Let's take that blues we heard before and find out what it's made of. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. I woke up this morning with a... Now, what are the elements that make that jazz? 
Well, first of all, there is the element of melody. Western music in general is based, melodically speaking, on scales. Major, minor, and some others. But there is a special scale for jazz, which is a variation of the regular major scale you all practiced as kids. In jazz, this scale gets modified three different times. The third note gets lowered from this to this. The fifth note gets lowered from this to this. And the seventh note gets lowered from this to this. Those three changed notes are referred to as blue notes. So instead of a phrase, which ordinarily would go something like this, which is not particularly jazzy, we would get, using blue notes, this phrase, which begins to show a jazz quality. But this so-called jazz scale is used only melodically. In the harmony underneath, we still use our old unflatted notes, and that causes a dissonance to happen between the tune and the chords. You hear that dissonance? But this very dissonance has a true jazz sound. Jazz pianists are always using those two dissonant notes together, and there's a reason for it. They are really searching for a note that isn't there at all, but one which lies somewhere between the two notes, between this and this. And the note is called a quarter tone. The quarter tone comes straight from Africa, which is the cradle of jazz, and where quarter tones are everyday stuff. We can produce one on a wind instrument or a stringed instrument or with the voice, but on the piano we have to approximate it by playing together the two notes on each side of it. The real note is somewhere in that crack between them. Now let's see if I can sing you a quarter tone, if you will forgive my horrid voice. Here is an African Swahili tune I once heard. The last note of it will be a quarter tone. Now that last note sounds as if it's terribly out of tune, but actually it is a real note in another musical language. In jazz, it is right at home. Now, just to show how important these so-called blue notes are to jazz, let's hear that same blues played without them, using only the plain white notes of the major scale. There is something missing, isn't there? It just isn't jazz. But even more important than melody in jazz is the element of rhythm. Rhythm is the first thing you associate with the word jazz, after all. There are two aspects to this point, the first being the beat. The beat is what you hear when the drummer's foot is beating the bass drum, or when the bass player is plucking his bass, or 
or even when the pianist is kicking the pedal with his foot. All this is elementary. The beat goes on from beginning to the end of any number, two or four of them to a bar, never changing in tempo or in meter. This is the heartbeat, so to speak, of jazz. But more involved and more interesting is the rhythm going on over the beat, rhythmic figures which depend on something called syncopation, a word you have certainly heard, but maybe were never quite sure of. A good way to understand syncopation might be to think of a heartbeat that goes along steadily and at a moment of shock misses a beat. It is that much of a physical reaction. Technically, syncopation means either the removal of an accent where you expect one or the placing of an accent where you least expect one. In either case, there is the element of surprise and shock. The body responds to this shock either by compensating for the missing accent or by reacting to the unexpected one. Now, where do we expect accents? Always on the first beat of a bar, on the downbeat. If there are two beats in a bar, one is going to be strong and two is going to be weak, exactly as in marching. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Even if there are four beats in a bar, it is still like marching, because although we all have only two legs, the sergeant still counts out in four. Hop, two, three, four, hop. Two, three, four. There is always that natural accent on one. Take it away, and there is a simple syncopation. One, two, three, four. <coughs> two, three, four. Two, three, four. You see that that missing accent on the first beat evokes a body response. Now, the other way to make a syncopation is exactly the reverse. Put an accent on a weak beat, the second or the fourth, where it does not belong, like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. This is what we all do when we listen to jazz, clapping our hands or snapping our fingers on the offbeat. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now, those are the basic facts of syncopation, and now we can understand its subtler aspects. Between one beat and another, there lie shorter and even weaker beats. And when these get accents, the shock is correspondingly greater. Since the weaker the beat you accentuate, the greater the surprise. Let's take eight of these fast beats in a bar. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The normal accent would fall on one and five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now instead, let's put a big accent on a real weak one, which is the fourth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 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 Okay, boys, thank you. As you see, we got a pure rumba rhythm simply by accentuating the weak fourth beat. Of course, the strongest syncopation of all would obviously be obtained by doing both things at once, putting an accent on a weak beat and taking away the accent from the strong. So now we will do this double operation put a wallop on the weak fourth beat and remove the strong fifth beat entirely. And we get one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four. It begins to sound like the Congo, doesn't it? Well, now that you've heard what syncopation is like, let's see what that same blues we heard before would sound like without it. I think you'll miss that essential element, the very life of jazz.
Sounds square, doesn't it? Well, that takes care of two very important elements, melody and rhythm. But jazz would not be jazz without its special tonal colors, the actual sound values you hear. These colors are many, but they mostly stem from the quality of the Negro singing voice. For instance, when Louis Armstrong plays his trumpet, he is only doing another version of his own voice. Listen to an Armstrong record like I Can't Give You Anything But Love and compare the trumpet solo with the vocal solo. You can't miss the fact that they're by the same fellow. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I'm letting over, baby. Dream my wild. Now the trumpet version. But the Negro voice has engendered other imitations, too. The saxophone is in itself a kind of imitation of it, breathy, a little hoarse, with a vibrato or tremor in it. Just to show you what a vibrato is, let's hear that sax again without one. Then there are all the different growls and rasps we get by putting mutes on the horns. Here, for example, is a trumpet with a cup mute. And now with a wah-wah mute. And now listen to a trombone with a plunger mute. There are other tonal colors that derive from Afro-Cuban sources, like the bongo drums, the maracas, the Cuban cowbell, and all the others. Then there are the colors that have an oriental flavor, the vibraphone, various symbols, and so on. All these special colorations make their contribution to the total quality of jazz. You have certainly all heard jazz tunes played straight by non-jazz orchestras and wondered what was missing. There certainly is something missing, the coloration. Let's now hear that same blues sung straight that is, without any jazz shading at all. Just 
not the real thing, is it? There is one more jazz element, one which may surprise some of you who think jazz is not an art. I refer to form. Did you know, for example, that the blues is a classical form? Most people use the word blues to mean any song that is blue or torchy or low down or breast beating, like Stormy Weather, for example. But Stormy Weather is not a blues and neither is Moanin' Low nor The Man I Love nor even The Birth of the Blues. They are all popular songs. The blues is basically a strict poetic form combined with music. It is based on a rhymed couplet with the first line repeated. For example, Billie Holiday sings, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. But when she sings it, she repeats the first line. So it goes, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. I said, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man that I've ever seen. That is one stanza of blues. A full blues is nothing more than a succession of such stanzas for as long as the singer wishes. Did you notice that the blues couplet is, of all things, in iambic pentameter? My man don't love me treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. This is about as classic as one can get. It means that you can take any rhymed couplet in iambic pentameter, from Shakespeare, for example, and make a perfect Macbeth blues. I will not be afraid of death and bane, till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. It makes a lovely blues. I will not be afraid of death or bane. I said I will not be afraid of death or bane. Till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. Now, if you've been very attentive, you've noticed that each of those three lines got four bars apiece, making in all a 12-bar stanza. But the voice itself sang only about half of each four-bar line, I will not be afraid of death and bane, and the rest was filled up by the orchestra. This filling up is called a break. And here in the break, we have the origin of the instrument imitating the voice, the very soil in which jazz grows. Perhaps the essential sound of jazz is Louis Armstrong improvising the breaks in a blues sung by Bessie Smith. From this kind of voice imitation, all instrumental improvising has since developed. Listen to that sound. Notice the instrument that is accompanying the singer. It is a harmonium, that wheezy little excuse for an organ which we all associate with hymn tunes. But far from being out of place in the blues, this instrument is especially appropriate, since the chords in the blues must always be exactly the same three chords we all know from hymn tunes.
These chords must always remain in a strict classical pattern, pure and simple. Try to vary them and the blues quality flies out the window. Well, there you have it. Melody, rhythm, tone color, form, harmony. In each department, there are special features that make jazz instead of just music. Let's now put them all together and hear a full-blown, all-out, happy blues. Oh, did you know that blues could be happy? Just listen. By this time, I've probably given you the impression that jazz is nothing but blues. Not at all. I've only used the blues to investigate jazz because it embodies the various elements of jazz in so clear and pure a way. But the rest of jazz is concerned with applying these same elements to something called the popular song. The popular song, too, is a form and has certain strict patterns. Popular songs are in either two-part or three-part form. By far the most numerous are in the three part. You all know this form, of course, from hearing it so much. It is simple as pie. Anyone can write one. Take Sweet Sue, for instance. All you need, really, is the first eight bars, which in the trade are called the front strain. Now the song is practically written, since the whole thing will be only 32 bars long, four groups of eight bars apiece. Now the second eight is the same exactly as the first. Making 16 bars and we're already half finished. Now the next eight bars, which is called the release, or the bridge, or just simply the middle part. This must be different music, but it doesn't matter if it's very good or not since most people don't remember it too well anyway. and then the same old front strain all over again. And it's finished. 32 bars and a classic forever. Easy, isn't it? But Sweet Sue is still not jazz. A popular song doesn't become jazz until it is improvised on. And there you have the real core of all jazz, improvisation. Remember I said that jazz was a player's art rather than a composer's? Well, this is the key to the whole problem. It is the player who, by improvising, makes jazz. He uses the popular song as a kind of dummy to hang his notes on. He dresses it up in his own way, and it comes out an original. So the pop tune, in acquiring a new dress, changes its personality completely, like many people who behave one way in blue jeans and in a wholly different way in dinner clothes. Some of you may object to this dressing up, you who say, let me hear the melody and not all this embroidery. But until you accept this principle of improvisation, you will never accept or understand jazz itself. What does improvising mean? It means that you take a tune, keep it in mind with its harmony and all, 
and then, as they used to say, just go to town or make it up as you go along. You go to town by adding ornaments and figurations or by making real old-fashioned variations, just as Mozart and Beethoven did. Let me show you a little of how Mozart did it, and then you may understand better how Errol Garner does it. Mozart took a well-known nursery rhyme, which he knew as A vous direz je maman, and which we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or as a way of singing the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and so on. Now, Mozart makes a series of variations on this tune. One of them begins... Then another. Another one begins. And yet another. different pieces, yet they are all in one way or another that same tune. The jazz musician does exactly the same thing. There are infinite possible versions of Sweet Sue, for example. The clarinet player might improvise one chorus of it this way. could have done that in any number of ways, and if I asked him to do it again tomorrow morning, it would come out a whole other piece. But it would still be Sweet Sue, and it would still be jazz. In fact, let's ask him to try it again and see how different it is. Now we come to the most exciting part of jazz, for me at any rate, simultaneous improvising. This happens when two or more musicians improvise on the same tune at the same time. Neither one knows exactly what the other is going to do, but they listen to each other and pick up phrases from each other and sort of talk together. What ties them together is the chords, the harmony of Sweet Sue. Over this harmony, they play two different melodic lines at the same time, which in musical terms makes a kind of accidental counterpoint. This is the germ of what is called the jam session. Now the trumpet is going to join with the clarinet in a double improvisation on Sweet Sue and see if you can distinguish the two melodic lines. <laughs> 
business of improvising together gave rise to the style called Dixieland, which is constantly having a big revival. One of the most exhilarating sounds in all music is that of a Dixieland band blaring out its final chorus all stops out with everyone improvising together. Here is that Dixieland chorus of Sweet Sue. see how exciting this can be. But jazz is not all improvisation, not by a long shot. Much of it gets written down, and it is then called an arrangement. The great days of arrangements were the 30s, when big startling swing arrangements were showing off the virtuosity of the great bands like Casaloma, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, the Dorsey Brothers, and so on. Now jazz is hard to write down, there is no way of notating exactly those quarter tones we talked about, nor the various smears and growls and subtle intonations. Even the rhythms can only be approximated in notation, so that much of the jazz quality is left to the instincts of the player who is reading the music. Still, it does work, because the instincts of those players are so deep and genuine. Let's listen to a good solid swing arrangement of a chorus of Sweet Sue, as we might have heard it back in 1938. Remember, this arrangement was for dancing. In 1938, we were all dancing, and that brings up the most important point of all. Nobody seems to dance to jazz very much anymore, except for mambo lovers, and they are limited to those who are athletic enough to do it. What has happened to dancing? We used to have a new dance practically every month. The Lindy Hop, the Shag, the Peabody, the Big Apple, Boogie, Susie Q. Now we have only dances you have to take lessons to do. What does this mean? Simply that the emphasis is on listening these days instead of on singing and dancing. This change had to happen. For one thing, the tremendous development of the recording industry has taught us to listen in a way we never did before. But even more important, with the advent of more complicated jazz like swing and boogie-woogie and bop, our interest has shifted to the music itself and to the virtuosity of its performance. That is, we are interested in what notes are being played, how well, how fast, and with what originality. You can't listen to bop intelligently and dance too, murmuring sweet nothings into your partner's ear. You have to listen as hard as you can to hear what's happening. So in a way, jazz has begun to be a kind of chamber music, an advanced, sophisticated art mainly for listening, full of influences of Bartok and Stravinsky, and very, very serious. 
Let's listen for a moment to this kind of arrangement of our old friend Sweet Sue. Now, whether you call that weird piece cool or crazy or futuristic or modernistic or whatever, the fact is that it is bordering on serious concert music. The arrangement begins to be a composition. Take away the beat, and you might not even know it's jazz at all. In fact, let's hear a little of it without the beat and see. <laughs> What we are hearing might perfectly well be a concert piece. Why is it jazz? Because it is played by jazz men on jazz instruments, and because it has its roots in the soil of jazz and not of Bach. I think the key word to all this is the word cool. It means what it implies. Jazz used to advertise itself as hot. Now the heat is off. The jazz player has become a highly serious person. He may even be an intellectual. He tends to wear Ivy League clothes, have a crew cut, or wear horn-rimmed glasses. He may have studied music at a conservatory or a university. This was unthinkable in the old days. Our new jazz man plays more quietly with greater concentration on musical values, on tone quality, technique. He knows Bartok and Stravinsky, and his music shows it. He tends to avoid big, flashy endings, the music just stops when it is over. As he has become cool, so have his listeners. They don't dance. They listen respectfully as if to chamber music and applaud politely at the end. At jazz nightclubs all over the world, you find audiences who do not necessarily have a drink in their hands and who do not beat out the rhythm and carry on as we did when I was a boy. It is all rather cool and surprisingly controlled considering that jazz is essentially an emotional experience. Where does this lead us in our investigation? To some pretty startling conclusions. There are those who conclude from all this that here in the new jazz is the real beginning of serious American music, that at last the American composer has his own expression. Of course, when they say this, they are intimating that all American symphonic works up to now are nothing but personalized imitations of the European symphonic tradition from Mozart to Mahler. Sometimes, I must say, I think they have a point. At any rate, we can be sure of one thing, that the line between serious music and jazz grows less and less clear. We have serious composers writing in the jazz idiom, and we have jazz musicians becoming serious composers. Perhaps we've stumbled on a theory. But theory or no theory, jazz goes on finding new paths, sometimes reviving old styles, but in either case, looking for freshness. In any art that is really vital and searching, splits are bound to develop, arguments arise, and factions form. 
Just as in painting, the non-objectivists are at sword's point with the representationalists, and in poetry, the imagists declaim against the surrealists, so in jazz music, we have a major battle between the traditionalists and the progressives. These latter are the ones who are trying hardest to get away from the patterns of half a century, experimenting with new sonorities, using note relationships that are not common to the old jazz, and in general, trying to keep jazz alive and interesting by broadening its scope. Let us see if we can feel the essential difference between the two schools by listening to a progressive jam session on, you guessed it, Sweet Sue. This style will embody all the elements we have discussed as distinguishing jazz from all other music, but will use them in a new and different way.
Well, we've heard jazz as it comes from the past, and we've had a sample of what might turn out to be the future of jazz. What we're hearing now is jazz in the present tense, still a fresh and vital art with a solid past and an exciting future. Our jazz feature this evening, part one of two educational, and I hope entertaining, jazz features. Tonight, of course, was the great maestro and communicator, Leonard Bernstein. And Maestro Bernstein, of course, talking about what jazz is and what jazz isn't, and then his uh, analysis of um, an old pop song that, uh, of course, was used um, by jazz musicians down through many generations. And, of course, that last example uh, that you heard was uh, a wonderfully abstract version of uh, the tune that uh, Bernstein was talking about, Sweet Sue. Um, That was uh, a variation on it, of course, by the great first quintet, of Miles Davis, sounding perennially modern, of course, as Miles Davis always did. And Miles on trumpet, John Coltrane on tenor saxophone, Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And uh, their version of Sweet Sue ending the recording what is jazz? And I, I hope you got a little smile out of some of those references that uh, are obviously dated because this was uh, done a number of years ago and how <laughs> uh, you know, horn-rimmed glasses, uh, intellectuals, all that kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, despite all of that, I still think this is a very important recording for people that have really no idea. Uh, They know what the word jazz is, and of course, uh, when they hear uh, some music, uh, they can recognize it as jazz, but what makes this music so unique? And and I think uh, Bernstein did an incredible job of uh, um, explaining all of that in a way that uh, you didn't have to have a music degree to understand what he was talking about. So, Um, I think this is a good recording. Next week um, will be part two of our education and uh, entertainment um, on jazz, and it will be a history of jazz, a brief history of jazz, narrated by one of the great, all-time great saxophone players in jazz, Julian Cannonball Adderley. So that's going to be our feature next week. And if you've never heard that recording that's really worth tuning in for. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or, of course, on your computer for live streaming, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and we'll be back after a few messages with the rest of our program, which is going to be all about the great living master of not only the tenor saxophone,
but one of the great living masters of jazz music and a wonderful philosopher and just a, an incredible person, Sonny Rollins. And we're going to be hearing a lot of his music. Some of that music may be familiar to you or some of that music may be entirely new to you. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Need a good story? Then check out TimelessLegend.com. It follows guitarist Miles as she moves to the big city in Meat Tricks and gets sucked into the weird world of Timeless. They tackle some serious issues like sexuality and inequality. You'll be hooked by the compelling story from episode one. Plus, there's an audiobook that's packed with a full cast of actors and original music to listen to on the go. Again, that's TimelessLegend.com. Use the coupon code Two Freedom to get it free right now. That's the number two and then word freedom. Broken Pencil, CITR 101.9 FM, and Discorder Magazine are proud to present Canzine Vancouver, the city's giant zine fair and festival of underground printed arts. Celebrating zines, comics, and works of weirdness. Over 300 on display and for sale. You won't find this stuff anywhere else, ever. Only at Canzine, September 21st, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the central branch of the Vancouver Public Library. It's free, and all are welcome. For complete festival lineup, visit canzine.ca. for you. Things have uh, changed a little bit. Uh, oh, I think uh, we're going to get uh, more, a little more summer later on, but uh, yeah, it's kind of unsettled right now. Uh, some showers tonight and maybe even a thunder shower with a low down of about 13. Tomorrow is going to be mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of some showers in the morning, maybe some more in the afternoon. One of those kind of days. Uh, so if you uh, if you pack an umbrella, that, that may be wise if you're uh, walking uh, and have to go anywhere. So um, that's going to be tomorrow with a low of 13 and high up to about 20. Wednesday is going to be a simple mix of sun and cloud with a low of 12 and a high of 17. Thursday is going to be cloudy with a 40% chance of a shower with a low of 15, high of 19. Friday is going to be cloudy with a low of 15, high of 19. Saturday, rain. Remember that? Rain. Low of 13, high of 17. And Sunday is going to be cloudy with a uh, 40% chance of a shower with a low of 12 and a high of 17. So there you have it. A little bit unsettled this week, but uh, you know, just be safe and uh, pack an umbrella with you. You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional 
unceded Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam speaking Musqueam people. Yes, Sonny Rollins, Theodore Walter Rollins, was uh, born in New York City on September 7th. 1930, and he, on September 7th of this year, was 89 years old. And for the last, um, I guess, uh, year or so, because of a lung ailment, he has been forced to uh, give up playing the saxophone uh, because he used to practice every day. And uh, he can't do that anymore. He doesn't have the sustaining power and um, it's kind of sad, and it, uh, it, for a while, apparently, it threw him into a little bit of a depression, but he's, he's come out of that, and um, he says he practices in his head every day, so <laughs> whatever. Sonny Rollins is, is uh, a unique individual. He, he has been through so much uh, over the years and, of course, was one of the movers and shakers of jazz music and one of the all-time greatest exponents of the tenor saxophone. He has made scads of classic recordings, uh, some of which we're going to hear this evening. And uh, we're, we're actually going to devote the rest of the show um, to honor Sonny Rollins. Sonny Rollins was one of my um, first musical heroes. I guess my, my, my first musical hero was Benny Goodman, but uh, that didn't last that long. Uh, although I played the clarinet. That was my first wind instrument after uh, some piano lessons. And uh, I loved Benny Goodman. And then, of course, I heard uh, other uh, uh, clarinet players. But it was Sonny Rollins uh, on some of his earliest recordings that really got to me. And I thought, this is, this is the way a saxophone should sound. And, of course, um, that was when I started to play the saxophone myself. And... Uh, Sonny Rollins was really, and still is, one of my, one of my idols. And um, I don't think there's any, uh, anything wrong with actually thinking that way about a musician of Sonny's stature. We're going to start our Sonny Rollins tribute with something that is not on any recordings. This is very special. It was uh, recorded at... Edmonton Jazz City, one of the early uh, Canadian jazz festivals. And at the time, I was working um, for the CBC, and uh, I was host of a, a jazz program there for about three years. Um, and I was able to, uh, uh, and this was a big assignment, um, I was sent along with some, uh, uh, my producer and some other people, um, to record a lot of uh, interviews with, uh, with jazz musicians that were appearing at the Edmonton Jazz Festival. There were, there were some pretty um, great people that were there. Sonny Rollins, of course, was one of the stars of Edmonton Jazz City in 1980. And um, because I had met Sonny several times before that, uh, he agreed to an interview. And um, we ended up talking for about three and a half hours. And unfortunately, 
Um, the interview was all taped, but uh, those tapes have been lost, and I didn't retain them. But however, um, there is a, an approximately a five-minute interview um, that was edited down for the show that I was doing on the CBC, and we'll hear that after this incredible performance. The setup here, Sonny um, hadn't been performing for a couple of months. Um, he was taking a break from constant uh, uh, concertizing and recording and, and, and touring, and he took a break for a couple of months, and the Edmonton Jazz City was his first uh, gig in a little while. And he put together this uh, marvelous band to uh, accompany him. Mark Soskin on piano, Jerome Harris on electric bass, and the great Al Foster on drums. And we're going to hear the first tune that Sonny opened his concert with uh, at the Edmonton Jazz Festival. And it literally blew everyone away. I think including the guys in the band, too, because Sonny was, is absolutely unstoppable on this. And that'll be followed by um, this five-minute interview uh, that uh, was part of this long conversation that Sonny Rollins and I had after the show in Edmonton. So here, then, we take you back to Edmonton Jazz City, and the spoken intro here is by the producer of the um, Edmonton Jazz City Jazz Festival, Mark Vasey, and he introduces Sonny Rollins. So check this out. And Sonny's playing his uh, own composition called Strode Road. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Jazz City Festival. The Jazz City Festival is very pleased to present to you the Sonny Rollins Quartet. Thank you. 
Thank you.
can say is, wow, my name's Gavin Walker, and I just experienced listening to a concert with the great Sonny Rollins and his quartet with uh, Mark Soskin on piano and Jerome Harris on bass, Al Foster on drums, and it was, to me, the high point of the Edmonton Jazz Festival, Jazz City, and sitting opposite to me is Mr. Theodore Walter Rollins, better known <laughs> as, as Sonny. How right. are you doing? Fine. Good, good to see you again. Really, that was a wonderful concert. The response was uh, just incredible. People really, really enjoyed it. I'm very happy about that. Yeah. I've never seen a man have more fun playing than, <laughs> than you. I was just telling some people backstage, I said, look, Sonny's out there just having a great time. No, that's beautiful because... Um, you know, that's the way I feel about it. I mean, I'm glad that that comes across. Oh, really? And it's a really wonderful band you have. Thank you. Um, everybody in the band. Yeah, I think I'm happy with this group, you know. All the guys can really play. and uh, it's, it's hard to get a good group together, you know. It, it's very hard. I mean, it's like being a father, really. You've got to really, you know, take care of, of all of their problems and everything right but it, it's it's worth it when they play good you know and when you're able to and get what you want happening. right get what i want happening so i can kind of express what i want to do you know so i don't have to worry about them i can just get as crazy as i want to get you know and they're right there that's what i want you know right. that's, what it's, that's what it's about I know you've been asked this before, and I, and I know you don't like to dwell on the past because that's been done. <laughs> and you wanna, you're a now person and looking forward to the future. Mm -hmm. But have you, have you ever toyed with the idea of getting back with somebody like Max Roach, who was on some of your important records of the 50s? Right, Tommy right. Flanagan. Right, yeah, oh yeah, I'd like to do In fact, uh, I, I'm looking forward to uh, playing with some of the with some of the people that uh, are still around. I'd even like to do something with Miles, you know. Again, you know, Miles is threatening to come get himself together and come back out and playing. So, uh, in fact, we've talked about it, doing some things together, you know. Really? Yeah. You mean recently? Oh yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do it. I think there's a uh, historical uh, thread that should be strung through uh, the years, as long as we're all still alive. You know, yes. sure, I'd love to do something. Well, so many contemporaries fell at a very young age. Right. You know? Oh yeah, we lost a lot Elmo of good Hope people. Kenny Dorham. Oh wow, uh, much longer list than the guys that are still here. You yes, know, so unfortunately. But, you know. It's almost like a war of attrition sometimes. Yeah, well, it's a rough, it's a rough business. Jazz is a rough life. Society is somewhat uh, hostile, antagonistic to the jazz player. So, uh, of necessity, you have to sort of uh, build your own life in your own world, and you know it can it gets rough for guys, you know. So. Um, uh, I really consider myself fortunate that uh, I'm still able to be around. You know? uh, I consider it fortunate that you are. Yeah, and I can think <laughs> back and I can think of Clifford Brown and standing next to Clifford and playing. I can think of 
Bud Powell playing behind me. You know, I can just think back in my mind and, and bring those things out at times. So actually, I feel fortunate about it, you know, that I've been yes. had a chance to, to really make it with some of these guys, you know, and these great people like, like that, you know. That's why when you say, oh, Sonny, we like the concert, that's why I feel good, because then I'm giving something back. You know, I feel I've gotten a lot out of my musical life. So if the people enjoy our concert, why, then I'm paying something back. You know, that's, that's sort of the way to look at it. Thank you very much, Sonny. And that was yours truly back in uh, 1980, talking to Sonny Rollins, and of course, when he mentioned Miles Davis, uh, Miles, of course, had been in his uh, reclusive period most of the uh, 70s and um, was about to come back. And, of course, uh, Miles and Sonny had always been very close, and they had been talking, and uh, it was very interesting. Unfortunately, that, never, that reunion never transpired. Um, however, they, they still remain close friends. So that was a performance, first of all, an amazing performance recorded at the uh, Edmonton Jazz Festival, which was called uh, Jazz City at that time. And Sonny Rollins and his band playing his tune, uh, Strode Road. And of course, uh, <laughs> there was no room for any other soloist on that tune. Sonny took it all. And of course, uh, as I said, he hadn't been, uh, he'd been um, away uh, just relaxing at home and, and not uh, touring and, and playing. Uh, and Edmonton was the first uh, booking uh, in a couple of months, and so he was raring to go. And that was the very first tune. That's what he opened up with at the uh, Jazz Festival, that tune called Strode Road, which is uh, uh, the original version of that tune is on Sonny's very famous prestige album, uh, Saxophone Colossus. And, of course, Sonny, uh, uh, Sonny's version here uh, is an updated version uh, with uh, Mark Soskin on piano, Jerome Harris on electric bass, and Al Foster on drums. And then uh, an excerpt from uh, the interview that I did with, uh, with Sonny Rollins. And as I mentioned before, um, <laughs> we talked for almost uh, three and a half hours, and uh, uh, it was quite incredible. And unfortunately, all of that interview has been lost, and uh, the only uh, remnants is what you just heard. And uh, so, however, we're going to go back now and play a couple of live recordings that Sonny did. Uh, these are not, uh, well, these have been issued on recordings. Uh, they were broadcast recordings from Birdland, uh, of course, the one of the leading jazz clubs in New York City. And it goes back to 1951. And, of course, Sonny was just out of his teens uh, playing here. Uh, he had been discovered by Miles Davis, who was already very prominent on the jazz scene. And he, Miles was returning from this kind of cool period that he went through with, the, um, with, with cool jazz and, and was returning to uh, just really hard-driving New York jazz. And um, he formed this band, 
uh, to play these Birdland gigs. And uh, um, so we're going to hear some prime early Sonny Rollins on, on these two tracks. Uh, the band includes, of course, as I mentioned, Miles Davis on trumpet, J.J. Johnson on trombone, Sonny Rollins on tenor saxophone, Kenny Drew on piano, Tommy Potter on bass, and the great Art Blakey on drums. We're going to hear two tunes. Uh, the first one is Miles' uh, variations on Tad Dameron's tune called Lady Bird that he um, reconfigured and called it Half Nelson. And the second tune is uh, a 12-bar blues that Miles wrote that I've always liked. Uh, it's a tune called Down. And uh, that's what we're going to hear. Recorded live at Birdland, June the 2nd, 1951. Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins and company. Thank you. 
recorded at Birdland in 1951. Now, this was a broadcast recording. That's why the sound quality was, well, <laughs> what you heard. But uh, still, uh, so much great music. And uh, somebody had, uh, years ago, had taken it off the uh, off the radio. And, of course, that um, was transferred around. And finally, uh, the... Uh, sound experts did uh, as best they could from these uh, vintage tapes uh, of very, very important music. And we heard two um, compositions, actually both of them by Miles Davis. The first one was called Half Nelson, and it was variations on a a Tad Dameron tune called Lady Bird. And the second tune was a 12-bar blues called Down. And the Miles Davis All-Stars with Miles on trumpet, J.J. Uh, Johnson on trombone, and the gentlemen we're paying tribute to uh, for the remainder of the show, a young 21-year-old Sonny Rollins on tenor saxophone, along with Kenny Drew on piano, Tommy Potter on bass, and Art Blakey on drums. June the 7th, 1951. Now, we haven't finished with Miles and Sonny. Um, Sonny Rollins, you know, was the first choice when Miles Davis formed his uh, um, first great quintet. Uh, Coltrane, John Coltrane, was not Miles' first choice. It was Sonny Rollins. But Sonny was um, living in Chicago at the time, um, getting over some problems and uh, uh, getting himself together to, to make a, a return to his beloved New York. Uh, but And when Miles phoned him uh, in Chicago to join the band, Sonny said, well, I'm not quite ready yet. Uh, I still, I'm dealing with my personal problems, and I'm not quite ready to, uh, to make the move. I don't want to go back to New York quite this moment. And so Miles looked around for another uh, saxophone player. And, of course, uh, it was recommended that uh, by Miles' drummer, Philly Joe Jones, that he hired John Coltrane, and the rest is history. However, Miles and Sonny Rollins still had a very close musical relationship. And this particular record date um, from 1956 and this is well-recorded stuff as well, Um, came out on Prestige Records. There wasn't enough recorded to make a a complete album, but uh, eventually these tracks were issued, and it was kind of a pickup band that um, Miles put together, like an ad hoc group, um, for these two tunes. And, of course, we hear... Um, Miles Davis on trumpet, sounding a lot more like Miles Davis than he did on those uh, two tunes we heard. Uh, His style had matured, as had Sonny Rollins' style, of course, by 1956. And uh, so we hear Miles on trumpet, Sonny Rollins on tenor saxophone, on piano, Tommy Flanagan. And uh, Tommy had just moved to New York from... Uh, Detroit, and of course, Miles just loved Tommy Flanagan's playing. Paul Chambers on bass, uh, who was Miles' favorite bass player at the time, and Arthur Taylor on drums. And we're going to hear two tunes. The first tune um, 
is known by a whole bunch of different titles. Um, and here it's called Veered Blues. And it's actually credited uh, to Miles Davis. Um, although I don't really believe he, he wrote the tune. I think it originated someplace else. But it's kind of one of those tunes that uh, nobody knows who composed it. Uh, again, it's a 12-bar blues. So, um, you know, <laughs> it could have been anybody. So we hear Veered Blues, uh, and uh, sometimes known as uh, 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 several other titles. Anyway, and the second tune is Miles Davis's first recording of a Dave Brubeck composition called In Your Own Sweet Way. And um, contrary to a lot of opinions, Miles Davis really liked Dave Brubeck's group, and he really liked Dave's compositions. And um, he, this was the, his first recording of a Dave Brubeck composition, In Your Own Sweet Way. And uh, both Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins are magnificent on these recordings. So sit back and enjoy Veered Blues and In Your Own Sweet Way. Miles and Sonny.
Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins together from this uh, date in March of 1956. And uh, this was kind of an ad hoc quintet, but um, Sonny, of course, in very creative form, playing a lot kind of softer than he normally does, less assertive, more introspective uh, on these two pieces of music. Um, the first one was, uh, well, who knows who <laughs> composed it. It's known by several different titles, but here it's called Veered Blues. And um, the second tune, of course, is Dave Brubeck's very famous composition called In Your Own Sweet Way. And we heard uh, Miles, of course, on trumpet, Sonny Rollins on tenor saxophone, Tommy Flanagan on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Arthur Taylor on drums. And, of course, uh, a warm get-together with Miles and, and Sonny. And our last um, performance of Miles and Sonny Rollins comes from the following year, 1957. Now, by that time, Sonny, of course, had apprenticed with the Max Roach Clifford Brown uh, band, and then... Uh, after the death, unfortunate death of Clifford Brown, Max Roach reformed the band, and Sonny stayed in the band and, of course, performed with uh, other people, such as trumpeter Kenny Dorham and, and, and so on, and, and, of course, Max Roach. Um, but in 19, early 1957, uh, Sonny uh, left Max Roach's organization and uh, began to freelance on his own. And during this time, uh, Miles Davis was uh, kind of playing um, his uh, first great quintet um, had broken up um, at his request. Uh, he had uh, fired a couple of people, and so he was working with uh, um, basically a pickup band, uh, for several gigs in early 1957 with different people. But when he could get Sonny Rollins, um, that's who he uh, wanted. And uh, we have this performance. Um, it's a live broadcast, and it's uh, from the Cafe Bohemia uh, in New York City, which was a, a, a great uh, jazz club at the time. Um, and this comes from uh, July 13th. 1957, the Cafe Bohemia. And Miles Quintet at the time included Sonny on tenor saxophone, sounding even more mature uh, than he did on the last recording. And Red Garland on piano, who became Miles' regular piano player. Um, Paul Chambers on bass. And once again, Arthur Taylor on drums. And this is a tune that um, they played together quite uh, often. It was a, a mainstay in Miles Davis's repertoire, and Sonny fell in love with the tune and continued to play this tune throughout his career. Anyway, the tune is written by the great um, alto saxophone virtuoso and blues singer Eddie Cleanhead Vinson, and he wrote this tune. Miles Davis has often ta taken credit for this tune, but he didn't write it. Uh, Eddie Vinson did, and the tune is called Four. So here then... More Miles and Sonny. 
That was recorded at the uh, Cafe Bohemia in New York, one of the legendary jazz clubs. And that featured um, Miles Davis and his quintet from 1957. Miles on trumpet, Sonny Rollins, of course, uh, on tenor saxophone, Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Arthur Taylor on drums. And that was a, a broadcast recording um, that took place on uh, July 13th, 1957. And Miles had played a series of gigs at that club and, of course, uh, as often as possible, used uh, Sonny on tenor saxophone. As um, and of course uh, later on, uh, reformed his uh, classic sextet with uh, Cannonball Adderley and John Coltrane, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. However, '57 uh, was a period where he was uh, working with uh, different people um, in a quintet setting. Here is a track. Now, one of Sonny Rollins' real mentors was pianist Thelonious Monk, and they did do a number of recordings together back in the early 50s. And this one is particularly um, wonderful because two incredible piano players are on this one tune, Horace Silver and Thelonious Monk. And uh, notice um, on this piece of music, uh, Horace uh, Silver backs J.J. Johnson, and then when Sonny solos, um, uh, Thelonious Monk backs up Sonny. And of course, uh, both of them, uh, both of the piano players take uh, uh, solos on this tune. But this is a Monk tune, and of course, uh, Sonny Rollins was always Thelonious Monk's favorite tenor saxophonist, and they were very, very close friends. And uh, Sonny really looked up to Monk, and, and uh, Monk opened up uh, Sonny's eyes to a lot of things, um, both musical and personal as well. And um, their relationship was, uh, was, was very strong. Anyway, this is from an album um, from Sonny's Blue Note period. And um, t this is one of my favorite tracks. Sonny on tenor saxophone uh, with J.J. Johnson on trombone, Horace Silver and Thelonious Monk on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Art Blakey on drums. And we're going to hear a piece of music called Mysterioso. And, of course, it was written by Thelonious Monk. And it's a very... Strange-sounding 12-bar blues built on major sixth intervals. Check it out.
That very special recording came from an album, uh, his second for Blue Note Records, called Sonny Rollins, Volume 2. And that's uh, very often um, an overlooked recording in the legacy of Sonny Rollins. Um, That featured, of course, um, Mr. Rollins on tenor saxophone, J.J. Johnson on trombone, and two piano players. Yeah. Thelonious Monk, of course, who wrote the tune, and Horace Silver. And as I mentioned before, Thelonious uh, backed up Sonny Rollins um, while he soloed and then took his own solo and then moved over when, uh, as Horace Silver uh, backed up trombonist J.J. Johnson and took his solo. On bass was Paul Chambers, and on drums, of course, um, the redoubtable Art Blakey who also was one of Thelonious Monk's best friends and favorite drummer, Art Blakey. So that was a Monk tune called Mysterioso, and based on the 12-bar blues. We're paying tribute, very obviously, to the great Sonny Rollins, who celebrated his 89th birthday a couple of days ago, September 7th. He was born in New York City from... um, Caribbean immigrants uh, who moved there from the islands, and uh, Sonny was born in 1930 and raised in a good, stable family. Um, they were all uh, very accomplished. Uh, his, um, he has, had a brother and a sister as well, and uh, his parents were... Um, uh, he, Sonny was raised in a, in a very... Uh, caring, stable I- environment, and he was the youngest uh, in the, all of all his uh, siblings. And he was born in 1930, September 7th. You are listening to the Jazz Show on CITR FM 101.9, or of course on your computer www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and. Obviously, we're paying tribute to Sonny Rollins, one of his greatest performances. And this particular piece of music um, is absolutely incredible. By um, In 1957, uh, Sonny, of course, was playing lots of gigs under his own name and using a, a whole variety of different musicians. And he decided uh, after working with a trumpet player and piano players and so on, he decided to cut everything down to the bare bones and just used uh, an accomplished bass player and an accomplished drummer. And that was something that gave him um, more freedom um, in his mind uh, to play and to control the music the way he wanted to do it. And... um, that was a very preferred um, environment for him to uh, perform in. He uh, did make a very famous album on the West Coast called uh, Way Out West, uh, where he performed under that context with just bass and drums um, with Shelley Mann and Ray Brown. And, of course, that kind of put the bug in, in Sonny's mind that this is what he wanted to continue So by the time he performed, he had an engagement at the Village Vanguard in New York. And 
he was performing with different people every night in the rhythm section. Um, he would hire somebody just for one night and then let them go and find, some, <laughs> find someone else. I imagine he was on the phone a lot, uh, changing rhythm sections because he was looking for that ideal. And he did find his ideal rhythm section um, when Blue Note Records decided to record him on November 3rd, 1957. And Sonny had the great Wilbur Ware on bass, and someone who's celebrating a birthday today, one of the greatest drummers in jazz, Elvin Jones. Now, this particular piece of music, this is interesting, too, because uh, uh, this is an original composition based on the 12-bar blues by Sonny, and uh, the owner of Blue Note Records, uh, normally record companies back in the 50s, uh, you had to publish with them, and they took the bulk of your royalties if other people you know, played your, your tunes. However, um, Alfred Lyon, who ran Blue Note Records, was very fair and, and a gentleman and a scholar, and he um, allowed Sonny Rollins to take control of his own compositions so that he could get all the royalties. And this is a very famous tune, and of course it's used in jam sessions as well. The tune is called Sunny Moon for Two, and it was written for um, Sonny's first wife, <laughs> believe it or not. And um, that's, that's why he called it that. But the thing about this performance, and I recall uh, spending some time here in Vancouver with the great drum teacher Jim Blackley. And uh, Jim was um, used to play this particular recording, and he said, that is, to my mind, real freedom. He said, do you hear what's going on there? And he would play the recording over and over again, and he'd say, see, it's, it's total freedom, and yet it's, uh, um, it's, not, it's not just random noise. It's real musical freedom. And he said uh, this was it's very difficult to explain, but he used this, uh, Jim Blackley used this uh, recording uh, for his drum students and said, you know, um, this is an example of um, the great Elvin Jones, the way he contributed to uh, uh, the success of this particular piece of music. Sonny Rollins has listed this as one of his favorite recorded performances. Now, Sonny is very, very self-critical and, and, and doesn't like very, very much that he recorded. He doesn't like to listen to his own recordings because he always feels he, he could have done something differently. But he likes this one. I know this for a fact, and I'm going to play it for you. This is from the Village Vanguard. Once again, Wilbur Ware on bass, Elvin Jones, Happy birthday, Alvin, on drums, and Sonny on tenor saxophone. This is Sonny Moon for two.
Sonny Rollins with Wilbur Ware on bass and the great Elvin Jones on drums. And, of course, uh, Elvin celebrating his birthday today, the late, great Elvin Jones. We're going to move now to an album called Sonny Rollins and the Big Brass. And this is from uh, 1958. And it featured um, Sonny with uh, a band um, put together by arranger Ernie Wilkins, who wrote the charts for the big band. And um, the big band has some great people in it, including um, Dick Katz on piano, uh, Henry Grimes on bass, Roy Haynes on drums, and um, a whole bunch of other people. And a guitar player from Belgium named René Thomas and uh, a great guitar player. And Sonny really enjoyed uh, working with René on this recording, as well as uh, all the other people. And it was a a different kind of recording for Sonny, and he really um, thrived in this uh, atmosphere. So we're going to hear two tracks from this album called Sonny Rollins and the Big Brass. And uh, we'll hear, I'll let you know who the soloists are. Of course, the, the principal soloist is the great Sonny Rollins. So we open with um, his tune, dedicated to the street that he lived on uh, in New York City at the time, uh, called Grand Street. And that's, um, that's the, the first tune that we're going to hear. And then uh, the second tune is called Far Out East. And that was written by the arranger of the big band, Ernie Wilkins. So, here is, or here are, two tunes from Sonny's album, Sonny Rollins and the Big Brass, beginning with Grand Street. Thank you. 
two tracks from an album that is uh, lesser known called Sonny Rollins and the Big Brass, and uh, a trumpet section um, comprising of uh, Reynolds Jones, Nat Adderley, Ernie Royal, Clark Terry, um, and uh, on trombones, Billy Byers, Jimmy Cleveland, Frank Rehack, and Don Butterfield on tuba, Dick Katz on piano, Henry Grimes on bass, and Roy Haynes on drums. And uh, all of this was uh, recorded in August, July and August 1958. We heard two tunes. Um, The arrangements, of course, were by Ernie Wilkins. And the first tune was called Grand Street, dedicated to the street where Sonny and his wife uh, Lucille lived on. And that was... uh, with the big band, and we heard solos also on there by Nat Adderley on cornet and René Thomas on guitar, the great Belgian guitarist. The second tune was an Ernie Wilkins composition called Far Out East, and that featured, of course, Sonny and uh, René Thomas in solos on that tune. One of Sonny Rollins' most astounding recorded solos is on an album that was the soundtrack that he wrote for a very famous movie called Alfie, the original version with Michael Caine. And Sonny wrote the music for um, that film. Uh, and, of course, uh, Burt Bacharach wrote the, um, wrote the ballad Alfie. Uh, but all Sonny's music was included in the film. And um, they recorded it. Um, in the um, in the studio, all the tunes that they used in the film, and um, this p- performance of Alfie's theme, of course, written by Sonny Rollins, is absolutely astounding. And again, it's Sonny um, performing with um, a small band uh, put together by arranger Oliver Nelson. And, of course, um, we hear um, Sonny along with uh, the brass section that includes all kinds of people. And um, Roger Calloway on piano, who takes the first solo on here, uh, or the second solo, marvelous piano player who is still with us, and the great Kenny Burrell on guitar solos as well before Sonny takes off. Uh, On bass is Walter Booker and one of my favorite drummers, Frankie Dunlop. So here then, Sonny Rollins with the the band uh, conducted by Oliver Nelson and Alfie's theme, written, of course, by Sonny Rollins. And this is one of his great recorded performances.
We heard three tunes by Sonny Rollins, all in different contexts. The first one was um, in this series was uh, Alfie's theme, which, of course, uh, Sonny Rollins wrote for the famous Michael Caine movie, Alfie. And we heard uh, Sonny performing with a small band under the direction of Oliver Nelson and delivering a tremendous solo on his own composition, Alfie's theme, along with uh, Kenny Burrell on guitar and Roger Calloway on piano and, of course, bassist Walter Booker and Frankie Dunlop on drums in the brass section. Um, And we heard Alfie's theme from Sonny's famous uh, Impulse album of the uh, music from the movie Alfie called simply Sonny Rollins' Alfie. Uh, The second piece of music, we went to uh, Montreux in Switzerland uh, for this performance and uh, from 1974. Recorded in concert with Sonny on tenor saxophone, Stanley Cowell on piano, Matsuo on guitar, Bob Cranshaw on electric bass, David Lee on drums, and Mitume on conga drums. And we heard Sonny's uh, tune from uh, the title track from this album that came out on Milestone Records, and we heard Sonny's composition, The Cutting Edge. We stayed with Exotica for the end of the show, and uh, this particular piece of music has always been a favorite of mine, and it was Sonny with Bob Cranshaw on acoustic bass and the great Candido Cometo on conga drums, and we heard an original creation by Sonny Rollins called Jungoso. 
And so ends our tribute to the great master of the tenor saxophone and one of the masters of jazz, who is now 89 years old, and he celebrated his 89th birthday um, three days ago on September 7th. 2019, and I'm talking about Sonny Rollins. So we hope you enjoyed the music this evening. If you were around for uh, part of the show, good. If you heard the whole show, great. And we'll be back next week. Our jazz feature next week is The History of Jazz, as narrated by Julian Cannonball Adderley. And, of course, this is part two of our um, back-to-school idea Uh, education, and entertainment as well. So we hope you can join us. On behalf of CITR, FM 101.9, or, of course, on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and this has been another edition of The Jazz Show right here. And we'll see you uh, in seven days' time. Take care. Bye-bye.
Are you a new grad student at UBC? Well then come down to the Campus Resources and Student Activity Fair presented by the Graduate Student Society 